0: A story they're right and today. A wallet they're climbing. You can carry the past on your shoulders. You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of no Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville. Through, where the pastor Jesus. is Pastor Ricky Rueda. Grab your Bibles and read along. Now here's Pastor so Ricky. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. We are gonna be in the book of Matthew as we bring chapter 12 to a close after this probably a month or two. No, we've probably been in here about a month. Um, And if you're new here, welcome to Calvary Chapel. My name is Ricky. I'm the pastor here. Welcome to those of you who are viewing online. And if you need a Bible, raise your hands and we will get one to you. We want to encourage you as much as we can to have your Bible with you so that you can track along with us as we read through the Word, and you can also hold the leadership accountable to make sure we are teaching from it. And so we've got one brother up here who needs a Bible. And with that, why don't we go ahead and open up in prayer before we dive into the Word this morning. So, Father, we come before you again, Lord. I know some Sunday mornings it seems like, Father, we pray often and repetitively, but, Lord, we know there's not a... There's not a way that we could pray enough. And so, Lord, as we are coming before you again, we ask that you would lend us the Holy Spirit, that you would give us wisdom and discernment, that you would provide us understanding. Father, so that we could, Lord, be refined by your word and be sanctified and washed by it, but also so that we could go out and proclaim the good news to those who need to hear it. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So... Matthew chapter 12, I should probably open up my notes here, huh? We have been tracking through verses 22, and today we're actually going to bring it to a close through verse 50 for some time. And through all of these teachings, you'll see the subtitle, The Unforgivable Sin, and today is The Unforgivable Sin Part 4, as verse 22 through 45 specifically is Jesus addressing the Pharisees and anybody who's listening their unbelief in who he is and who he is working on behalf of and so if you have your Bibles I have marked in mind that this is one whole conversation and Jesus is giving them a handful of reasons why their unbelief is inexcusable And so to give you guys just a little bit of background for those of you who are new here, the book of Matthew was written specifically to the Jew so that they could see that Jesus is, in fact, the awaited Messiah. Now, with that in mind, Jesus performs this impossible miracle of healing this demon-possessed man who was mute. And at the healing of this man the Pharisees would respond because the people would begin to ask, well, is, is this the son of David who we have been waiting on? And they would say, because they were trying to withhold glory themselves, that this is not, he is healing on behalf of Beelzebub or the devil. And so at that, Jesus hears this conversation and begins a robust conversation. Um, thrashing basically of the word of all the reasons why the Pharisees were wrong. And so if you have been tracking with us for some time, he gives a few points. And first we see a a logic section or his logical arguments. One being that the enemy doesn't work against itself. And then the second is that God does and is able to bind the strong men in order for healing and salvation to be accomplished. And so the first thing is, I can't possibly be working on behalf of the enemy because the enemy wouldn't work against itself. And also I am binding the enemy in order to accomplish these tasks. And then we see Jesus move on to this issue of character or truth and or truth. We see that a person's faith is made evident by their fruit and their words. And so Jesus would say that the fruit of who I am coming from is made clear by the words that I speak, and so also are others' fruit made evident. And then it says that a wicked generation would seek a sign, and we see that this is an interesting point as well, is that Jesus has just performed what they believed to be impossible, and they would immediately say, well, Jesus, we would just like a sign from you in order to believe, which... Again, it's crazy because he's just accomplished that, along with many other things that Jesus has been doing in the land of Israel at this time. And so, today we're going to see a final warning as Jesus is wrapping up this conversation with the Pharisees and those who are listening on with this final warning. Today we'll see the hazards of purposefully residing in a place of unbelief after God has made his work, his word, and his truth clear. And so if you have your Bibles, would you look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 with me? And if you're there, would you say amen? It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. Then the last state of that person is worse than the first, and so also will it be with this evil generation. We're going to continue on. It says, while he was still speaking with the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so these are the verses that we'll cover today. And we're gonna start with this final encouragement or warning from Jesus in verse 43. Just gonna read this one last time. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Immediately we see that the enemy doesn't stop. And <clears throat> something I want us to consider is that while we're not speaking about the great deceiver himself, we are talking about those who are facil- or related to him, and the mission is still the same, and the mission is still just as relentless here is that the enemy has no intentions to quit trying to destroy those that God loves and those that God has called good. Now, <clears throat> mind you, we've seen that the majority of this conversation, Jesus is directly addressing the unbelief of false teachings of the Pharisees. But here, Jesus begins to make a point that should cause us to consider who Jesus is un indirectly addressing. And the reason I bring that up is, again, we've seen Jesus directly respond to the Pharisees, but he's bringing up this issue of possession again. And keeping in context with the whole text here is Jesus has just healed a demon-oppressed man. And, those, and it doesn't say that this man has left or it doesn't say that those who were asking these questions have left, but he begins to bring this issue back up And so here, with that being the case, we have to realize or at least consider that Jesus isn't just addressing the Pharisees here, but the man who was healed and those who were beginning to question whether he was the Messiah or not. He's just healed this demon-possessed man. But the Pharisees have directed anyone who would listen that Jesus is healing on behalf of the deceiver. So this response if this healed man is still present, along with anyone else listening, should cause them to question who they are relying on their salvation for. Do I follow the words of these Pharisees, or do I follow the words who I will say is the Redeemer, as Jesus has just made this man well? This response should reveal to those listening that Jesus is continuing to draw a line in the sand and one leads to destruction and the other leads to life everlasting so here <clears throat> consider again everybody who is caught in the middle of this conversation this man has just been made well i'm sure there's no way he wasn't excited about the fact that he's been made well and celebrating and the pharisees would deliver him a blow in his answer that this isn't this you've been blessed but it's been done on the work of the enemy and those listening, again, would be caught in this crossfire of conversation. And now, as Jesus is bringing this up, as many of the other points, it's a, now I'm going to have to start paying attention to who I'm listening to. Now, you might ask, how in the world does this apply to us today? Is it just as much applies to us today? Because there are still men, and I am one of them, who are trying to communicate the word on behalf of others. As my job as a pastor is to be a teacher as well. And the reason, one of the reasons we want to encourage you guys to have your word with you is to ensure that truth is what is being taught to you. To ensure that we're not communicating something to withhold glory or growth for ourselves, but to ensure that you are seeing the glory of God only and wholly And so here they have a conflicting message. One has done them well and one hasn't. We even see that Jesus would undercut the Pharisees a little bit in saying, well, if I'm working on behalf of Baal's above, who in the world are you working on behalf of? Because you don't seem to be healing anybody. And so here, these, just like we have to consider, is who are we listening to and why are we listening to them? Are they leading us unto the words of life or are they leading us into their own wisdom here? And this is a crossroads that is absolutely imperative that we acknowledge because Jesus draws a line in the sand spiritually today, just like he always has. As we can try to have a faith founded on the words of our teachers, or we can have our faith founded on the word of God that leads to everlasting life. Are you tracking with me? And so here they have found themselves in a similar situation that many of us find ourselves in and that we need to ensure that we are hearing from the word of God itself to make sure that we are walking on the path of truth. Now, with that, this camp of opposition, this spiritual reality that does exist, it will come to an end, but it isn't coming to an end today. If you look at Revelation twenty ten. We see that the deceiver is going to be thrown into a lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever. But that isn't today. So if that's not today, what else do we need to consider? Well, we need to consider John 10.10 when it says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that, sorry, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is that this tension here that exists is one is leading to death and one is leading to life and we have to be aware of what's happening because whoever is not communicating the word of truth is in fact leading those who are listening to a path that ultimately leads to destruction and so With that, we are talking about false teachers in this text, we're talking about the demons who are trying to possess this individual or any individuals like them. There is a spiritual battle raging in this conversation. Jesus is speaking about this possession in spiritual realm as a fact and as a reality. And if Jesus is going to address it like it is one, we have to acknowledge that it is real. Now, in American and Western culture, we have done a fantastic job of eradicating the idea that the spiritual realm is, in fact, real. We don't like to talk in these terms. They seem new agey. They seem weird. And while there is a false version of it, we can't ignore the fact that we are engaging in a spiritual battle against a spiritual enemy who wants to see us and those that the Lord loves destroyed, and he's using this fact to explain spiritual truth. Now, there's a good way to look at this text, and there's a poor way to look at this text. It is interesting to study the acts of the enemy. However, that should never be our takeaway. It is better to understand the way God moves than it is to worry about the way the enemy moves, because if I understand more about my God, I'll be able to understand when something isn't of him. We should note, more importantly in this text, that their behavior, the enemies, these demons, are still reliant on the doing of the Holy Spirit. When we read through the Old Testament, we see that even the enemy himself can't do anything without the permission of God and so again while it's an interesting study it's more important that we know the father but this does force us to realize again that we're real players in this spiritual battle what are we fighting Ephesians 6:12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places brothers and sisters whether you want to acknowledge it or not you are engaged in this battle and you are either fighting for the lord or you are being used by the enemy and we have to consider which side that we're on for those of us that are in the lord well you would say or you might ask well how in the world do I protect myself from the ways of the enemy then? If I'm a Christian and I'm a believer, what do I do? Well, Ephesians 6:10 through 11 continues on to say, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so putting on the whole armor of God is inclusive of understanding and knowing his truth and being wholly equipped in prayer at all times. And then how do we fight? Do we fight? 2 Corinthians ten three through five says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And that's what we do, and Jesus is doing an amazing job of showing us how we ought to do this because. He is waging this war. He is taking all these thoughts captive. He is destroying strongholds, and he's belittling those who thought themselves to be wise. And what is he using it with? He's using the word of God to reveal to them that they are wrong. So here, as we look at this, let's not get caught up in the doings of the enemy, but get caught up in how the Holy Spirit is working through this verses 44 through 45 as we see that our enemy does not stop. It says, Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be With this evil generation. So, acknowledging that we are involved in this spiritual reality, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, this section reveals even more that our flesh is a temporary residence. We have to remember that the world that we live in, the flesh that we reside in, these things are temporary. These are things that we're not to hold on to. However, this does show us something that I've noted I think is interesting is that this residence is not a residence for one. Is, as we read through the scripture and as we read through scriptures as a whole is that our spirit certainly resides in this place but it certainly seems that per or by design that something else is supposed to dwell in it. Now, what does Scripture say? 1 Corinthians three, sixteen through 17, "'Do you not know that you are God's temple "'and that God's Spirit dwells in you? "'If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, "'for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple.'" In this particular section, we're talking about the hazards of a home that is empty. But brothers and sisters, if you are in the Lord, your home is not empty. The Holy Spirit is in you, not only to lead you, but to continue to sanctify or wash you, but also to protect you. But for those of us who are apart from God at this time, our residence is not wholly occupied, and as it is not wholly occupied, it is open for visitors. Now notice this. This demon or this um, being would say, let me return back to whose home? What does the text say? Let it return back to my home. The I think uh, Spurgeon would say the audacity that they would have to consider this place their home. But they do. It's interesting that it would evaluate the body of God's creation as its residence. And it speaks again to the frailty of our flesh that it could be taken from us while our conscience still resides in it. And it reveals to us that there's a horrifying reality that it could be taken by a malevolent being. Now, before we continue on in this, we're talking about one particular circumstance, and this is, again, focused on possession. However, Scripture also says that the spirit of the Antichrist is also opposed to God, and that our spirit can, just, can be just as opposed to God itself and that we shouldn't walk away from this text assuming that, well, this, this text only applies to those who are possessed right now. Well, no. You still have to ask, whose spirit are you walking within? Whose spirit have you re- who, that have you, sorry, oh my gosh, tongue twister here. Whose spirit have you submitted yours to in order to be led itself as well? You know, it's not not a distant reality anymore as our church has stepped into as much outreach as we have. And we've dealt with so much addiction ministry and we call it addiction ministry, but what it really is biblically is a sin ministry. And a lot of times we like to separate those kind of ministries from what ministry is as a whole. And I want to encourage you that if there's anyone in here that thinks that Outreach ministry is dealing with a different thing than the regular church is, and I would say, biblically, you're wrong. We're dealing with sin issues just like the rest of the church is. We in our flesh are just as addicted to sin as anybody else is. The appearance or follow-through of it is what is different. However, it's separating you from God just the same. And so here... We have to ask, who is residing in our house? Who is it? And you know what? Again, for those of you who are not possessed in here, track with me. (laughs) Your spirit is still submitted to somebody. And this house that we're talking about here may not still be welcoming of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is willing and wanting to do a work, but again, to walk away from this and think this only applies to possession is not accurate. You would say, Who is my spirit submitted to so that the Holy Spirit could reside in it? Now, what's interesting, again, Jesus is bringing this point back up after he's just healed somebody, and it brings up the issue or the point of the house being swept and put back in order. What does it say here specifically? says, I will return to my house from which it goes in, sorry, from which I came. And when it comes, it finds a house empty, swept, and put back in order. And then it would go and find seven more. Now here, for this brother who has just been healed, and for anybody who has ever had God speak to them, the Holy Spirit is doing the work even before salvation happens to make it possible for you to hear and see truth that salvation could be achieved can we be honest for a second is before salvation our house is a wreck it's terrible we watch what's that show hoarders that was out a long time ago spiritually speaking pre-christ we're all hoarders spiritually We don't want anybody to come into this mess. It's an absolute disaster. But the Holy Spirit does something for this man through Jesus in that he gives him clarity of mind so that he has the ability to hear this conversation and respond to this conversation. And then he now has a choice to either follow Christ or deny Christ just like everybody else who is listening. And so this even points to the reality that A move of the Holy Spirit does not guarantee salvation. You still have to be submitted to the truth. A person can be physically healed but still spiritually destitute. A person can absolutely be in a room where the Holy Spirit has moved and still walk away not knowing him at all. A person might even be used by God and still not know him. As we see in Scripture, it says, Many will come before him and say, Lord, Lord, I did this work for you. And he'd say, Go away from me. I never knew you. But in God's good grace and his mercy, he cleans the house so that we would be able to hear, see, and tell truth apart from the lie, but the decision still needs to be made. Now, we're not going to break this point down too much because we're going to see Jesus begin to explain some of this even more with the parable of the sower uh, next Sunday. But again, these things don't always lead to salvation, but it is potential for saving. There's still the requirement of submission for salvation to be made sure. And brothers and sisters, I think a question we cannot overlook is, are we submitted to God? Are we playing church? Are we submitted to God in order to be saved? And are we actually a disciple? Because we'll see in a minute. We can call ourselves a Christian all day, but God's family is identified by their discipleship, which is following and close abiding. Now, speaking about housing here for a minute, this work shows that a new tenant did the work with the intention to reside in this place, but at the moment hasn't been given final approval to move in. Now, for any of you who have ever looked for a house, whether it's an apartment or you're buying a house or doing anything like this, this isn't wise financial practice for somebody who doesn't have Resources that they can lose. When you're purchasing in a house and you want to find something, you don't find it and decide to clean it up or remodel it before you that that contract is signed and dotted, right? Because there's still potential for a great loss. But here, God does something interesting and it's a picture of God's desire for his lost sheep. And he sees something, someone who he created, who he desires, and he invests, the time so that they could see truth while still risking the lost, but so that true love could be realized once truth has been heard. I do believe that a section like this tends to rail against the issue of Calvinism and that God is doing a work here that still has a potential for loss. Now notice, our God that we serve has a cattle on a thousand hills. His resources are abundant. He's not worried about a waste of time or a waste of resources or anything like that. But what God makes clear here is that he's concerned about the loss of a soul. And God has just done a miracle for this man so that he could be saved. Notice that. It doesn't say, it says that he was healed, but it doesn't say that he was saved. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is making himself known to you with every opportunity you have to hear his truth. We may overlook the the wonderfulness of church, but every time we step into a place like this, saved or unsaved, if you're saved, you're being sanctified. If you're unsaved, your house is being cleaned just for a moment so that you could be submitted to the word of God and be saved, so that you could be set free from the bonds that you were previously found in. Why? Because what is a token of love in the home of a hoarder? I don't know how many of you have ever been in a hoarder's home. If you were to leave a token or a gesture of kindness in a hoarder's home, they'd never know. I remember years ago when I was still working in uh, multifamily housing, this lady, I don't know how she did it without us noticing, but she put in a work order because her HVAC stopped working. HVAC is air conditioning, for those of you that don't know. And I opened the door to go in, and there is, you can only walk sideways through this lady's house, not to the kitchen, but just to the bathroom. And I'm really not even sure how she got sat on the toilet. There was so much stuff in there. But we couldn't make any repairs because nothing was accessible in the home. It was completely bogged down by all the things that she was clinging to that she thought were irreplaceable to her. Unfortunately, these things that she thought were irreplaceable were actually keeping her from being comfortable completely. And the the more harsh reality is that the things that she stored up in that house are the things that actually broke the things that she needed to be comfortable. The house had to be gutted before we could fix anything. And you know, this woman sobbed the day that the company came to empty her house out. But after everything was gone and after everything was fixed, she was able to sit in her home and use her house the way that she was supposed to. And she had tears, but it was a different one because she didn't realize how uncomfortable she was. Spiritually speaking, this is what is happening here. Jesus has given this man the ability to notice and to hear and to see the token of love that's been expressed to him. Again, this isn't a waste of time to God. This isn't a waste of resources to the Lord. Oftentimes we try to rationalize the actions of God based off of our realities. I don't know anybody in this room who has such an abundance of resources that we could invest our time and efforts this way. We have to account for things, but God doesn't. He is the author and creator of all things. He upholds life in the universe in his hand. This isn't a waste for God, but it's a potential for something gained. And to the song, I don't know how many of you know my opinion of this, how many of you know Reckless Love? Raise your hand. A few of you. We sing the song and we understand the sentiment, but you, something you'll never ever find in Scripture is our God doesn't do anything recklessly. Amen. Not a thing. It's reckless to us because we can only understand a reality where loss exists with us. But it's not reckless to a God who is the author and sustainer of all things. It is a purposeful Intelligent and perfect decision to go save the lost. It is reckless to us who are small, but it is not reckless to the God who is enormous and immeasurable, amen? And as this house has been swept out, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit doesn't exist in this place yet. This demon comes back and finds it cleaned up. And it goes and finds seven others more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. It's our warning in this effort, in this display of love, our response is that it is an imperative because a lack of response is the same as a denial because it gives the opportunity for sin to creep back in or in this particular circumstance, possession to happen again and something worse than what was there in the first place. This time the demon sees the place and doesn't care for the work that's been done there but will ensure that it can't be made that clean again as easily as it was done last time. Every refusal is increased complication for salvation. This is what the, what scripture calls the hardening of a person's heart. Now, as we do deal with addiction ministry quite often here, an unfortunate reality of it is somebody can taste freedom for a moment, but every time they go back, it gets harder and harder and harder to relinquish the thing that they are so stuck to. And again, we tend to talk in extremes, but biblically speaking, brothers and sisters, every time we refuse the grace of God and choose the thing that we would desire more, instead of being submitted to his word, we harden our hearts and we make it more complicated every single time we hear truth. I would note here in this text, Jesus does not say that this person is unsavable. It just says that the situation will be worse should this happen. We can equate this to all sorts of sin. When we choose to refuse God's perfect grace and we choose to go back to the sin that we've tasted a little bit of freedom from. I'm sure many of you, no matter what the sin is, have noticed that it doesn't stay the same. It begins to increase in our desire for it. Brothers and sisters, there's only so many times that we can deny the work of God before our heart will be Rock hard. We see the issue with Pharaoh when we we see God extend a message to him through Moses, let my people go. And he hardens his heart every single time he's offered an opportunity to let the people go. And Moses' hard heart would see him destroyed. And again, these eight spirits could be removed by God absolutely. It just makes his life that much more undesirable, uncomfortable, miserable, should he not follow after the God who's offering his salvation. Their state is worse than the first and so also will it be with this generation. I would underline that if you have your Bibles. Remembering the context of this conversation, again, we can tend to hyper-focus on the possession part of this, but Jesus is actually speaking to the issue of unbelief still. He's speaking to the Pharisees still. He's not speaking to the man who was just healed. We can just assume safely because this is still the conversation that that man might be close by. We know that there are others who are listening who begin to question whether this is the Messiah, but he is still speaking to the Pharisees who doubted him. He says... This situation is bad, but you must know that the generation who seeks a sign, who would choose to deny the work of the Holy Spirit, this generation will deal with the same problem. If there's any of you in here who don't know the Lord... And you know he's reached out to you and you've continued to refuse to submit your life to him. You are running the risk. You are currently walking on the path of being this wicked generation who would be compared to this man who has been reoccupied by these eight demons. Again, there's a literal application here and a spiritual and figurative one how many times can we possibly reject the good graces of God and assume that life is going to get more simple? How many times can I read the word of God, see what I'm called to do, and choose to do what I want to do rather and expect blessings will come rather than complications? Sin wants to see you destroyed. Sin wants to see every man and woman destroyed. We don't consider the significance, again, of what's really happening here because we tend to think the spiritual reality of these things isn't real, but biblically speaking, it is. You are engaging in eternal decisions. And brothers and sisters, for those of us who are saved, it's just a side note application. When you choose to be disobedient to God's word, when you know what he's called you to do, you can't be possessed, but you're certainly not going to see convenience come your way. You tracking with me on that one? This response to unbelief. He's equated that the state of the unbeliever would be extraordinarily terrible. And the state of the generation who would deny God would be terrible as well. The state will only grow worse. And some of you might ask, well, how, how do I do this? Maybe you're an unbeliever in this room. Well, how do I avoid this situation? How do I avoid this problem? I don't know how to make my house clean. That's a problem, right? How do we make our house clean so that we could come to salvation? How many of you have ever asked that question? Can we note here in this text, God never, Jesus never implies for a moment that you're the one who makes your house clean at all. It's the Holy Spirit who makes it clean so that you could be saved. He's cleared out the residence. He's given you the space. He's speaking truth to you so that you could be saved. The work is already being done for you. And then you might ask, well, okay, well, I'm hearing the message. Well, what do I do next? You put your faith and trust in Jesus and continue to let the Holy Spirit make, we're gonna go Southern here for a minute, make that house a home. Consider that for a moment. You get to sit back and listen to the words of truth while the Holy Spirit gets to dress up the home in a way that is pleasing to Him and in a way that will be satisfying to your soul. I'm currently moving into a house at the moment and <clears throat> we're putting floors in and we're doing all kinds of stuff. And I was thinking about this while we were putting this together and. We're at the beginnings of it and if any of you have ever been in kind of a remodel of sorts, you know it seems a little bit messy but you can see the work that's being done. How many of you have ever been there? It's like, oh, this is a little rough but you can see each little blessing come into place and you can see what it's gonna look like when it's done and you can see the comfort that's gonna come with it once it's complete. Brothers and sisters, The Holy Spirit wants to do that with you. You get to sit back and see, you know what? It might not be what I want it to be now, but the Holy Spirit's putting every single piece into place so that your soul would be satisfied and rested and residing in the peace of God. You don't do anything except let the Lord work. Take up that armor, pray, and let the Lord build the house around you. He's cleared it out. If this is your time hearing the gospel message for the first time, the house is clear right now. And he can continue to do the work in that place. And once he's there, that enemy can't get in. He's got, the enemy's gonna come back looking at this text. He's not gonna come back to find an empty home that's been made up. He's gonna find a fully occupied one because you are the temple and the Holy Spirit resides in you. Amen? There are other brothers and sisters I've gotten to know in this this church who, y'all, the Holy Spirit has done an amazing job in your home. And for those of us who are younger, who are still being sanctified and growing in the Lord, you give us encouragement to continue to abide in the word because we can see what God has done in your life. God is able to do wonderful things. Again, I don't want us to look at this text and think, oh no, demons are out there. Who cares? It doesn't matter. If the Holy Spirit is with you, if God is for us, who can be against us? There is no spirit of fear within Christians, but we are supposed to be reliant on the Holy Spirit so that we don't have to fear. If you don't know the Lord, you have a reason to fear because there is nobody safeguarding your house. Go back to the beginning of the conversation. Jesus says that there is a strong man, but he is able to bind that strong man. Without Christ and without the Holy Spirit, that strong man is still a problem, but in Christ, he is an irrelevant existence. Amen? So is the Holy Spirit cultivating your home. And in this the conversation gets interrupted while he was still speaking to the people behold his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him but he replied to the man who told him Who is my brother and who are who is my mother and who are my brothers and stretching out his hand towards his disciples he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother This is a separate point, but it's wrapping up the conversation here. The Lord's in our family are indicated by our discipleship and indicated by our abiding in Christ. Jesus is speaking to a group of people. He's speaking to the Pharisees and his his mother and his brothers and family. The family shows up to speak to him. And he would respond, well, who are those? And notice this, that Jesus doesn't extend his hand to the crowd. Jesus specifically extends over the disciples and says, this is my family. It makes it known that Jesus pointed to the disciples and not the rest. Continued contention between Jesus and the Pharisees here, but message of hope for us is in Christ we are not only saved but we are his family and in Christ if we are if we are Christ's family you have to know that within the church within the body of believers these are your brothers and sisters as well The Christian faith is not supposed to be done solo, but it's supposed to be done together that we would edify and encourage, correct when necessary, but edify and encourage one another. The spiritual fight isn't supposed to be fought alone. And it isn't alone. And I would say, brothers and sisters, if Jesus could extend his hand over this group, who would be the disciples here? And then, also, do you look at them like family? When we read through Scripture, I would say again that not just in the West, but the church overall sometimes can be a far cry from what Scripture has indicated that the church ought to be. If you are a believer in Christ, then you are spiritually obligated to the care and prayers of those who sit around you. So I would ask you, when you look around the room, do you see family or do you see strangers? Because if it is strangers that you see, and I don't mean literally, like if you just walked in here today and you don't know anybody, they're strangers, all right? We get it. But still, to the point, you have been grafted into the family of God as you have chosen to, not chosen, as you have been called to abide in Christ. But those who have also been abiding in Christ, they are now your family. And there are so many Christians who feel alone because there is no practice of family within the church. And that is an unbiblical practice to think that it is my house and my house first and only. Now, mind you, you have to make sure that you are taken care of before you can help somebody else. But if your my first mindset keeps you from ever helping anybody, you've gone a little too far. This is his and it is our family. When we look at Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and I'm going to bring this up because as the world continues to get more intense, We're gonna continue to see the world reflect the world that we see in Acts. As the world continues to grow in its animosity and hatred for God and God's people, we're going to see that this will continue to be a problem. And I'm sure that there are some of you here who have given your lives to the Lord and you have seen that your family is not just unreceptive of the fact that you have come to salvation, but now don't have anything or they don't want anything to do with you. And so why has the church come into practice? Well, Acts 2:42 through 47, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Jesus warns us of the spiritual reality, but then we see Jesus reveal to us this next wonderful one of the family unit of salvation and of the church. And can I challenge you, if you read through Acts 42 through 47 and you see that you don't understand what this is, sit in that for a little bit and ask the Lord how you could partake in this. Church, if you read through and you see that the church is not an example of this or isn't even trying to be an example of this, pray and ask God how he could use you to be a part of the church that does this. It says that they would gather together and they had all things in common. One first issue is do you know each other well enough to have all things in common? I will say if you have Christ, you have enough in common to start to learn that you have more in common. Amen? You guys tracking with me on that one? This is a military town and a marine town and it's just a town in general. We have very few things in common in the flesh. But if we have Christ in common, we can learn from there, right? Right? They would sell their possessions and belongings and begin to distribute their proceeds to all. Now, we're not talking about some weird social structure. We're just talking about people who cared for one another. Amen? This isn't socialism. This isn't communism. This is Christianity. They attended the temple together and in the breaking of bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This family, this church unit, these disciples who Jesus would have put his hands over, they desired to be together and they desired to be in a place where God is being worshiped. And so family would ask, do you desire to be together or do you? Actually, no, and do you desire to be in a place where God is worshiped? And that's a really tough question today because speaking about today's society, the average churchgoer today goes to church one to two times a month. Now, some of you might think, well, that's not that... Big a deal? Well, I think one to two times a month, if you're including midweek services, clearly indicates that there's not a desire to be with God's people. And more importantly, there's not a desire to be in a place where God is worshiped. And can I challenge you, because Pastor Matt did it first, so it's his fault in this, is that if you have a busy schedule, I would challenge you to step back and consider do you have a busy schedule or do you desire something else? Do you have a busy schedule or are you teaching your children to desire something else? Because if God really is our holy and perfect and fully sufficient provider, then why do I need to teach my children to be reliant on anything else? Just consider that. We think about ourselves and we think about what's important for us, but we have to acknowledge and know that all of our actions are teaching, especially those of us that have little ones looking up to us, and all of you do, whether they're in your house or in somebody else's house. You are teaching somebody who's watching you what is important to desire. And so here, in terms of what it is that we would desire. Who resides within us? We see Jesus giving them this final warning. The Holy Spirit's cleaning the house, but a decision needs to be made. Is the Holy Spirit gonna be the one who resides there? Are you gonna continue to let sin abound there? And who, or are we his family? Those are the two big takeaways from today. The second can't be answered without the first, though. I'll tell you that. Who resides within us today? And that's that's not just a question for the unbeliever here. There are some of us who came to salvation a long time ago, maybe not all that long ago, and you didn't know what to do. Maybe some of you heard the gospel and you didn't know what to do next. I would say, cry out to the Lord and say that you want him to be Lord of your life and to teach you what that means. And he will be faithful to do so. We are saved by faith alone. Put your faith and trust in Jesus and let the Holy Spirit make that place a home, amen? So with that, I'm gonna invite the worship team back up. as we have brought this issue of the unforgivable sin to a close. And for those of you who haven't been here, <clears throat> this unforgivable sin is the, is the sin of unbelief. So the challenge for any of you who may not know the Lord here, the only thing that God cannot forgive you of is your decision to not acknowledge and to not be submitted to him. And so today, if you want to make a decision, if you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, I will be up here and our other pastors will be at the front and we would love to pray over you and for you and we'd love to disciple you and pray with you as you you learn what it is to let the Holy Spirit mend your home, amen? If there's anybody else in the church who needs prayer for any other thing, whether you need prayer for healing or whether you need the Lord to just give you answers, we're up here for prayer. Don't let the enemy keep you away from prayer. This is one of the church's mandates that we would be a people of prayer and that this would be a house of prayer. So we're here for you. I may not have the answer, but the Lord does. And we can seek that out together. So with that, let's close out in prayer now. The worship team will close us out in a song and we'll be up here to pray with you. And so Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, considering this issue of the returning spirit, Lord, God, if there are any, if there is any of us in here who is dealing with the issue of oppression or possession, Lord, God, we pray that you would begin to intervene. God, we pray that you would make the house clean so that truth could be heard. God, we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment to be able to pray for and to deal with any individual who's here and who needs your help, Lord. They don't need ours, they need yours. Father, if there's any of us here who don't know you, Lord, and Father, we would desire to hear truth and to know love in its truest form as Father, Lord, you are love, God, we pray that you would give us the faith to come forward and to pray and to call on your name, Jesus. And Lord, for the rest of us, God, if there's any of us who do need prayer, if there's any of us who need family, who need to be reminded, God, that we are not alone, but that, Lord, you not only dwell within us, but, Father, you've given us a body of believers to bear with us, Lord, we pray that you would encourage and remind us of that, and that you might even make us so bold as to come and ask for prayer, either from those up front or from their brothers and sisters next to them. And Lord, for the rest, we ask that you would give us the faith to worship and praise your name aloud, because Lord, you are always worthy to be praised. I pray that you wouldn't make us a faithless people or you wouldn't allow us to be a faithless people who would keep our mouths shut when we ought to, Lord, celebrate what you have already done, Lord, because you have already done it all. You have already won. It is finished.